0: Hey, hey, hey. Welcome to Beer Sessions Radio. It's Jimmy Carboni. It's uh, March 2014. A couple weeks ago, I had the pleasure of uh, interviewing Ron Pattinson of uh, Shut Up About Barclay Perkins, a great beer blog in England. And he was joined by Dan Paquette of Pretty Things in uh, Ale and Beer Project in Massachusetts, who's made some uh, historical recipes uh, from from Ron's great book that just came out about homebrewing. And uh, so here's the show. I just wanted to say hi to everybody. Uh, it's a pre-record on tonight. And I'll give one more shout out. Our, uh, sadly, our good friend uh, Dennis Zentek, the owner of DBA. Uh, he was Ray Dieter's partner. He died sadly this week. And uh, uh, peace and a love to his, his community at DBA. So uh, take it away,
1: Jack. We've got this great pre record uh, with Ron Pattinson from England. Today's program has been brought to you by GreatBrewers.com, a social media marketing platform dedicated to promoting the world's great brewers and the beers they create. For more information, visit GreatBrewers.com. I'm Michael Lameco from Food Talk. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit
2: heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
0: Hey, hey, hey. Welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. It's March 10th, 2014. We're doing a special pre-record here out at Roberta's in Bushwick. Uh, we got some special guests in, and you'll be listening to this probably sometime in April 2014. So I'm Jimmy Carboni from Jimmy's Number 43 and the Good Beer Seal. We're very proud to be on the Heritage Radio Network, and we're sponsored by GreatBeers.com. who are bringing great beers to you around the country. So our two special guests tonight, um, Ron Pattinson, he's the, the blog blogger of uh, Shut Up About Barclay Perkins. He's been controversial to some of us in, the, in New York, and uh, his good buddy, uh, Dan Paquette from Pretty Things Beer in the Massachusetts, uh, they've collaborated on some historical beer styles, and uh, Ron for many years has been researching some of the old, great uh, styles of beer in England, uh, going back to the, the 1900s um, and 1800s. Uh, Dan, wh- wh- why don't you say hello first and, and tell us how you first met Ron and a little bit about your backstory.
2: Okay, hello. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to remember. I know... Um, oh, yeah. I, I do know. Uh, remember how we first met Ron was Martha, I think. You know, she used to be a scientist. My wife, Martha, the other brewer for Pretty Things. And she had um, some kind of herpes conference in, uh, <laughs> in, uh, somewhere in the Netherlands. And uh, I had been reading Ron's site. And I, I think we, we shouted out to him and said, hey, can we meet up with you? Um, and we met up with Ron... This is probably about 2007 I think something like that at um gosh I can't remember the name of the place in Amsterdam bar but uh we had a good time um and it, that I think we probably hung out with you for maybe a very short time about an hour and then uh we kept on bumping into him in places like the cursed beer festival in Belgium and and if uh and then famously we we had a layover, an extended layover, uh, not planned, in Amsterdam on our way back back from Yorkshire one time, and we sort of went on the internet and said, Ron Pattinson, please report to the pub, and he <laughs> showed up, and uh, we started talking about old beers.
0: All right, and Ron Pattinson, so you're the author of uh, Shut Up About Barkley Perkins blog, and your new book's out, which is why you're here in the States, you've been in Boston, New York, and Philly, The Homebrew's Guide to Vintage Beer. Welcome to the show.
3: Uh, well, welcome. Thank you. Uh, yes, I'm over here for about 12 days in total going around to, uh, quite a few cities on the East Coast doing promotional events. So I started off in Boston. I was, um, I'm now down in New York. Then tomorrow I'll go to Philadelphia for a couple of days. Then I'm going to be brewing in Colonial Williamsburg and giving a, a talk on 18th century English brewing there. And then on to Philadelphia and Baltimore for further events.
0: Great. Um, just ju- jumping around, we have a lot to cover today, and, uh, I've read your blog a few times, and I've really been impressed by some of the beers you've made with, with Dan. Um, tell us about how that got started. I mean, first you started out researching, you know, old styles of beer, and just tell us, you know, how you got started. Um, yeah, well, I've had a, a blog that was mostly basically
3: pub guides for, sorry, a, a website with, of pub guides since the mid-1990s, and then I started to get more and more interested in uh, brewing history and particularly in the history of Porter and when I found out that it was very inconsistent what people said in books I realised I had to go back to the primary sources and then I discovered exactly how much was still in archives in London and stuff that didn't seem to have been looked at in any systematic way at all so I just started collecting as much information as I could at the archives and uh, trying to publish so other people could know about it
0: Dean: You guys have made some great collaborations <laughs> together, too. I mean, looking back through the archives, I mean, you know, you can check it out. How do you act- What's the actual blog? Uh, the blog, Shut Up About Barclay Perkins, which it
3: has that strange name because my family got so fed up of me talking about Barclay Perkins, which was a big London brewery, uh, that they kept saying that to me. So I thought, well, if they won't listen to me, I'll just write it down on, the, on a blog instead. And then I've got an audience and I don't have to bore my
0: family. So what you do in the blog, and I, I've looked at it a few times, so, so you go back, you get old brewery records, and you attempt to kind of just document what they were actually making at, at that time. You pick a year and a style. Is, is that how you do it?
3: Well, I, I mean, what I've done is I've, I've gone through the brewing records, uh, as I said, in a very systematic way. So I've tried, say, with Whitbread, where they've got all the records from 1804 to 1974 when the brewery closed. I've taken photographs of of the Brewing records for every single year, and I've put them into an enormous spreadsheet, so I can see exactly how their beer changed over the over the years. And it's a, a very interesting thing to do. Uh, certain types of beer, like say XAL, which is the standard mild, changed so much between 1804 and 1974 that the the, the beers would be unrecognisable. It was one of the, the nice projects that uh, I did with Dan was that we brewed two Barclay Perkins exhales, one from 1838 and one from 1945, and the beers were completely different. Uh, The older one was 7% alcohol, really heavily hopped, pale in colour, and the one from 1945 was only 2.8% alcohol, dark in colour, completely different beer, not very hoppy. Um, And I thought... I think it's a good way of showing people just how dynamic the brewing scene was when you say, okay, this is the same beer. It was marketed as the same beer by the same brewery. And over the period of 100 years, it completely transformed itself. I think that's an interesting story to tell people.
0: And Dan, what's it been like m- making beers from these recipes?
2: Well, I mean, one, one of the first things that you, you're struck by when you see some of these old recipes is... Um, especially if you're, you're back, we started in 1832. Our first uh, beer was a 4x mild. Uh, is the number is the pounds of hops that are used per barrel? We're we're kind of impressed with ourselves in America these days about how much hops we use, but we don't really hold the candle to what they did back then, and um, we. Uh, the the very first batch we decided that we wanted to put leaf hops in and be as traditional as possible it took three people about 3 hours just to break up the leaf hops uh it, they went into the boil and you could you could put a stand up a stick a broom in the in the kettle with the amount of hops that were in there i mean that is a huge huge amount of hops in huge difference from the way we make make beer today and um that was actually the beer was beautiful but the 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 brew day was a disaster it took it pretty much every valve uh was stuck or broken after that with the amount of hops that were going through um but that's definitely one of the things is there was a lot of hops uh being used in these beers way back when there's a different economy you had basically free labor to pick the hops didn't you with all the uh pretty much yeah yeah and uh I, if you were to, I can't imagine using that amount of hops at the price they are today, in in modern beers, it wouldn't make sense. They wouldn't able, you wouldn't be able to. Uh, you know, you have to be a super specialty sort of beer to get away with that sort of price.
3: Uh, speaking of hops, one of the things that really interested me, and fascinated me when I looked at the records was to see how far back American hops had been used in English brewing, and just what quantities were used. So. They first show up about the 1840s, I think. But, you see, when you, when you get to the 1860s, you're getting something like 25 30% of all the hops used in Britain came from the United States. And Britain was a hugely important export market for the uh, American hop industry and took massive quantities of hops. Um, British brewers used so many hops in the 19th century. There were years where they were using 50% of the whole world hop supply. Just really insane. And you see some of the brews. There's, there's brews that literally have tons of hops in them. Two, three thousand pounds in a single brew. Really, I, I, I still can't imagine what sort of volume that, that quantity of leaf hops takes up.
2: Yeah, Sam Calgione would cringe at that number, even.
3: <laughs> well, I have had uh, De Moler in Holland. I, I wanted to, uh, the, to get the brewer there, the brewer Russian Stout from the 1850s. And he said to me, he couldn't put that many hops in a beer. It was just too many. Because I think it was like double the amount that were in that, or maybe treble the amount that were in that eighteen
2: thirty-two miles.
3: Yeah, really crazy amounts. I think it was. I think it might have been even over ten pounds a barrel.
2: There's just not enough volume to do that. There's not enough space to put them in. What was what was going on? I have think? no idea how they did it. Yeah. Wow.
0: And so you've you've made beers with other other breweries besides uh, Pretty Things. Yes. Uh, 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 First I'd, of all, sorry. It's, uh, this is a pre-record. This is a Monday morning. Daylight savings. It's, it's not five o'clock on a Tuesday, but
2: yeah,
0: yeah. We're, we were up last night. At Jimmy's number forty three. We got to drink some of uh, some Dan's. Uh, we had a uh, what did we drink?
2: Well, we drank the nineteen the nineteen fifty five uh, whip bread double brown, the nineteen oh one KK, and uh, and many other beers.
0: <laughs> well, that's when I when I first heard about Ron was was when some of your early series like the the KKS so those the nineteen oh one style beer.
2: Yeah, Ron can probably talk about that one.
0: Yeah, we had our last bottle last night, so that was a couple years old.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, KK is a really interesting style.
3: It's a beer that in London was brewed a lot in London. The K's stand for keeping, so these were beers that were meant to be aged before they were sold. Um, you had KK, KKK, and 4K's, there was KK being the weakest. Uh, KK, no, normally called Burton in the pub was one of the standard draft beers in London pubs up until the 1950s. Um, it's a very interesting style. That about the only example that's still left is uh, Young's Winter Warmer, which used to be called Burton, and then at some point, I think about 1970, they changed the name to Winter Warmer, probably when it, when it went completely seasonal. But it's a, I, I really like the st- styles of beer. And the 1901, that was in a transitional period. If you went back to, say, the 1880s, it was a, would have been a pale beer, made from 100% pale malt, uh, but around 1900, it started to change, and, uh, and it went dark in colour, and they, it was dark in the typical way of uh, that they used in Britain, which was, it wasn't done with uh, dark malt, but it was done with uh, dark sugar, normally number three invert, and caramel.
2: The other thing, we, uh, the 1901 and the East India Porter that we did, that was kind of interesting, um, it was there was this whole idea that this new uh black ipa style had been invented or cascading dark whatever and uh, we we're just trying to say that uh hops had been used in in black beers for quite a long time in fact you know hops were used in a beer that was shipped to india that was that was very dark so it's uh we we're trying to debunk the uh you know all all of that stuff yeah, man. well i mean
3: I'd, I'd really like to bring back the east india porter style it's Everyone knows the IPA story, but if you look at the actual figures, there was probably a double the amount of porter shipped to India as there was pale ale. And it's a very British tale, really, in that the, the, the pale ale was meant for the officers and the officials of the East India Company, whereas the porter went to the ordinary British soldiers, and in some units they actually got porter as part of a, of their rations. And they tried to encourage the soldiers to drink porter rather than spirits because they realised that the death rate was much lower in the units where they had porter rather than rum. Um, but, and you think, well, why everyone remember IPA and no-one remembers East India Porter? And it's probably the thing, it's the class thing, that because it was the, the middle, middle and upper classes who drank the IPA, they're the people who would have written about it, whereas what the ordinary soldiers did didn't really get recorded. And that's, I think, why it's been forgotten. But it's a really fascinating style that was brewed for a long while. And interestingly, the name East India Porter predates the name IPA. So IPA wasn't used until about the 1820s, whereas I've got brewing records of Barclay Perkins EI, so East India Porter, from 1804. So it's got just as long a history. In fact... um, They seem to have been brewing it longer even than uh, than pale ale for for export to India because whereas the India trade in pale ale had pretty much ended by about 1900, Barclay Perkins was still brewing their East India Porter in in 1910. So it it was really a beer with a very long history. And and it's a shame because, and I think it probably fit in quite well with modern taste because it's, it's it's the same basic concept as pale ale all except done with a porter. So it's a standard strength beer but it's just hopped much more heavily. And also the other thing is to have the, a lower degree of attenuation. This is one of the things people never seem to realise about uh, IPA. One of the one of the things that, the things that defend, helped it avoid problems during the voyage weren't alcohol and hops. It was high attenuation, so there was no sugar left, no sugars left for any, anything nasty to start eating, and the high level of hops. That, that's how they kept all the, the bugs out of the beer. And people seem to have this obsession about IPA being particularly strong. Well, it wasn't. It was just a standard-strength beer. It looks strong nowadays because beers have gone down in strength. Um, You look at a standard x from the 1830s, and it got an OG of about 1070. And then you look at IPAs from the same period, and they're only about 1065 or 1060. So they, they weren't strong beers by the standards of the day.
0: Awesome. Hey, we're going to take a short break. We've got a couple more segments. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right.
1: So you like good beer. Download their mobile Beer Cloud app, which includes a GPS beer finder, a beer sommelier, and descriptions for over 5,000 different brews. What are you waiting for? Back up that passion for craft beer with some solid information and education. Visit greatbrewers.com today.
0: Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. We're doing a special pre-record with Ron Pattinson of Shut Up About Barclay Perkins. He's here in New York, Boston, and Philly uh, in March. He's touring with a new book, The Homebrewer's Guide to Vintage Beer. He's joined by his good buddy Dan Paquette from Pretty, Pretty Things in Massachusetts, who's uh, made a series of historical beers based on uh, Ron's research. And we also are joined now by John Hall, uh, editor of All About Beer and author of.
4: The American, American- <laughs> craft beer cookbook. <laughs> one of these never guys get the that. Title right there.
0: But I love that we, we did a great dinner with you too, John. John, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Jimmy. Pretty so we got we got Ron. Uh, Ron's just kind of talking some <clears throat> stories. He's got many stories, and uh, the book's really great, Ron. It, it, it talks about how you got started, how you started doing research, and um, you know you went to the original sources. But we were just talking about how everyone knows the East India uh, Pale Ale, the IPA. But you said the more popular was the East India Porter. Yes, and, and
3: uh, one of the differences with the porter was that whereas India pale, uh, the pale ale was shipped in barrels and then bottled in India, the porter seems to have been uh, completely draft beer. So they shipped out the barrels and then it was just drunk, drunk on draft. But you see some amazing stories about... Um, British beer was incredibly robust. It was designed to be sent anywhere in the world without refrigeration. And that's why Britain was able to corner most of the export market in beer before the advent of refrigeration. As soon as you get refrigeration the German lager brewers come in and take over Uh, but before that the the British were really strong on exporting and you see things about um, one thing that really surprised me I found in an, an Australian newspaper from I think the 1870s where they mentioned this Scottish beer that was being sold on draft, not even in one of the big cities on the coast, but somewhere inland. So that had been shipped all the way around the world by sailing ship, and it was still in fit condition to drink on draft by the time it got to Australia. And I think that's pretty impressive. And my guess would be no modern beer could stand up to that.
0: Wow. And you've also said that you think that beer was... Beer made a big change around the time of World War One. Yeah, World War, World War I has a
3: huge impact on the whole beer scene in Britain. <clears throat> it, it basically all starts with the unlimited German U-boat campaign in 1917, which was initially incredibly effective, much, much more effective than the U-boat campaign ever was in World War Two. And so many ships were getting sunk. It got to a point in the middle of 1917 when Britain was down to only a couple of weeks grain supplies. And so everyone got really worried and then they started having massive restrictions on brewing. So you go from British beer having an average gravity of 10.55 in 1914 and by 1918 it's down to about 10.30. And so... There were loads of government restrictions. They told brewers how much beer they could brew and what strength it was and how much they could sell it for in the pubs. And the other side is... So that really knocked down the strength of British beer, and it's never got back to being anything like as strong again. But there's also a huge impact on pubs. Um, before World War One, London pubs opened 16 hours a day. They opened at 6.30 in the morning. And because they were worried about uh, uh, munitions workers... Uh, drinking and getting plastered instead of uh, and not turning up for work they started to really restrict the, the pub opening hours so by the end of the war it was only I think about five hours a day that the pubs were open So
0: the, the war screwed
3: mm-hmm. British beer Yeah, it had a, had a terrible impact and World War Two did something similar and between the two of them in, in, in each war it knocked about 15-20% off the strength of beer and it also killed off some beer starts so you see that during both wars that the brewers cut down the number of beers that they brewed. So Porter, for example, got killed off in World War II. Uh, Most of the London brewers discontinued it in 1940, uh, just when the war was starting to hot up. Um, Though if you look at Whitbread, the amount that they were brewing, they were probably brewing it more for sentimental reasons rather than for economic ones. They were brewing like, I don't know, this is a brewery that was brewing batches of, of, of a thousand barrels at a time and they'd be brewing 30 barrels of porter. So it was really a, a very marginal product for them. And so you see, uh, both wars, that the, the, the ranges of beers that a brewery produces was really whittled down. So that, that had an effect as well.
0: well I'll tell you, in, in your book, uh, The Home Brewer's Guide to Vintage Beer, I know you, you're covering a lot of styles, and I know your blog, Shut Up About Barkley Perkins, does. John, um, you, know, you, you, you know the beer scene. You've, you've interviewed a lot of people. Um, What's your opinion of, of Ron Pattinson and, and Shut Up About Barclay Perkins in the States? Do you think people know what he's doing?
4: Yes. And if Ron shows up in the comments section of your blog, uh, you hold your breath very carefully first uh, until you read it all the way through. As a, as a great authority, a great historian, Ron has really elevated, I think, the conversation for a lot of people in challenging us as to what we think we actually know about beer. Uh, by backing it up with historical facts, uh, as, as a U.S. journalist, as somebody who, who deals in in the, in the worlds of facts, it's wonderful to have somebody like Ron uh, who is thoughtful, uh, is persistent, and is usually right, I will say. And is, uh, it, it's great given a lot of the culture that's out there these days where people who have blogs will just spout out whatever they want uh, without really basing it on, on any true facts.
0: Well, one thing, going back to just what he was saying earlier also, when people think about the history of beer in New York. They all think about the German style of beer, the German breweries that come in, probably 1840s, and whether they're Rheingold or other breweries that people identify with in New York, but I, I like hearing about this, this other world of beer, the world of Br- British beer.
3: Well, I mean, people in the state seem to think that as soon as the German brewers arrived, that ale brewing disappeared, which isn't true. I mean, in, in New Jersey, and Newark, you've got Ballantines and Feigenschmann, who were big breweries. I mean, Ballantine was in the top ten breweries in, in, in terms of volume in the US, so it wasn't a minor operation. But I've been lucky enough to get hold of some American brewing records, uh, ironically all from New York State, um, and the ones from the 1830s, from uh, the the uh, Vassar Brewery in Poughkeepsie. There it looks very much like an English country brewery. They're brewing ales very much in the style of country breweries in England. When I look at the, the, the records from Amstel, which was a, a brewery in uh, Albany, New York, from 1900, it's completely different. You can see all these German influences. They're starting to give the gravity in balling rather than in pounds per barrel and that they're croisoning the beers and so you can see that there's been this influence so even though they're still producing what are what have got the names of British style, so they're produ- producing XX and Porter and IPA and Burton Ale and Scotch Ale they're brewed in a very different way from in England um, and, and you can see that the difference is basically a German influence
0: and uh, Dan Paquette from Pretty Things uh, we're drinking one of your beers right now great uh, the 1955 style right so tell us about, about that beer. Um, we we're jumping ahead. But
2: it's a good beer, and that's what we're drinking. That's right. Um, so um, there are a couple of interesting things about this beer. It's not an all-malt beer. And, you know, this is one of the things that you find more and more. Um, I used to say when it, you go to breweries in Europe, you you, you find the dirty little secret, which is, which is caramel coloring and dark sugars and things like that. It's not really a dirty little secret because, uh, you know, when you think about... Um, Beers made from made from barley, um, and and as they gain in strength, they gain, gain in heaviness and, and you know and, and gravity. So, in order to make a very drinkable uh, stronger beer, you can imagine there would be a lot of things like sugars and that. So, in this particular beer, there's uh, quite a lot of invert sugar where we're getting some of our color from. A very very small amount of a of a roasted malt in this. Two different pale malts. Um, you, see, you find that often, I guess, just sort of... Uh,
3: no, that's normally two or three different pale yeah. malts. And that, that, that's, that, that's for practical reasons. They like to have a mixture of raw ingredients because they knew that they don't only have a limited supply of, of each ingredient. So they didn't want it so when you change the malt that suddenly there's a big difference in the character. It's the same with hops. You'll see there'll be three types of hops. They might all be East Kent Goldings, but just from different suppliers. And again, it's because they wanted to have it so that when they stopped using one particular type of hop and substituted another, that you wouldn't notice much of a difference in the finished beer. Dan?
0: You want me to
2: keep going? <laughs> you're, you're,
0: you're looking at the book. We're yeah, talking just, about...
2: Yeah, I'm just... You know, I'm, I was, I was going to go back to his uh, recipe here because it's actually from a different year than the one that we did, isn't it?
0: Yeah.
3: Um, the, the, the 1955 one was one of the recipes that was cut for space reasons. <laughs>
2: But it made our our roster. Um, so it's five five point one percent alcohol, and it's um, you know it has the word double on it, which is kind of interesting. It's a it's a word we use a lot uh, today to mean um, well, gosh, all sorts of things really in the beer world. But um, it's five point one percent, which I'm sure has a lot of the younger uh, generation scratching their heads at what what this could possibly be double. <laughs> um, but um, <clears throat> well, you know, y- yesterday you brought me. Uh,
0: one keg of the, it was. You said it's the 1955 Whitbread Double Brown. So I, I didn't know what I was going to get, but it, it, I liked it. It was very drinkable. It wasn't too strong.
2: Oh yeah, I mean it's a, it's a, it's an incredibly drinkable beer. Um, it finishes, you know, fair, fairly low, um, but it's got some body, uh, and it's got a bit of the of the roasted character to it as well. So it's um, it's a lovely beer. You know, it, the the thing about making these historical beers is um. You know we we look for ones that are 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 inter- are more interesting than most, so when we started off with a ten and a half percent mild and you know all these hoppy dark beers to to try to talk, to try to sort of uh show people that uh i black i p a wasn't invented you know ten years ago um, it, but um we're also showing beers that were drunk by lots of people this wasn't necessarily a specialty industry where People went on the internet and traded beers. I mean, these are these are for um, these are for normal beer drinkers, and uh, you know. And, and Ron is always talking about uh, you know firing up the time machine, and I totally would like to fire up the time machine because you know a a world where there were relevant crazy beers is is pretty cool. Like right now, we're we're a niche within a niche within a niche, but to imagine like London in 1838, where Six-year-olds in the workhouse were being (laughs) being fed eighteen, you know, being fed you know four X mild and things like this. It's just it's, you know, it's it's amazing. And uh, the other thing about these beers is you know they're tried and true. You know I'm just you know we're just sort of doing our best to recreate them, Um, and we're perfectly happy to let um, you know. Martha and I always say if 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 a beer was was crappy in 1850. It should be crappy today, <laughs> and so we 're totally uh, w- willing to let that happen um, the good thing The good news is that these are tried and true recipes that a lot of people drank and talked about and complained about, and that, you know eventually they were turned into these great beers uh, and uh, you know they sort of come out and you can taste you know that somebody worked really hard on them. Uh, we made a number we made a the last beer we made together was uh, youngers number one from Scotland, one of their stronger beers, and that had a had a cereal mash uh with corn grits and we did the original cereal mash which is you know it's it's a scary operation to do in a brewery if you don't get it right you basically make a big corn sort of muffin the bottom of your (laughs) vessel and um we shipped over that cereal mash you basically have two mashes going on at the same time we shipped over that cereal mash to the louder and absolutely nailed the uh The the temperature that they had recorded on the original brewing documents, which is, it just shows you they knew what they were doing, you know?
3: Well, I I, I was really pleased that that Dan did agree to brew a Scottish beer because Scottish beer, there's been so much rubbish written about uh, Scottish beer that's all, virtually everything anyone has ever said about it is completely wrong and doesn't tally with the way they actually brewed in Scotland. So the stuff about roast barley, I've never found a single recipe with roast barley in it. Um, uh, long uh, caramelising boils not. what Scottish brewers actually did was boil for a really short length of time in the 19th century they'd, they'd do boils that were less than an hour at a time when in England mostly you'd never have a boil less than an hour and a half and you might boil for as long as four hours that, that was really typical of the porter breweries so the porter breweries had always the, the classic way of doing uh, brewing porter in London was to do four, three or four mashes and the first water would be boiled for an hour, the second for two hours, the third for three hours, and the fourth for four hours. And they were boiling, obviously, to try and concentrate the wort, the later ones, to, so that there wasn't quite as much liquid there to get the gravity higher, but also to get colour. And so it was happening in England, but I've got no evidence of getting uh, colour through boiling in Scotland at all. And the Scottish brewers generally never used any dark malts. The only time they ever used any dark malts was in... Uh, porter and stout the other beers were always all just pale malt and normally maize uh, uh, corn, either in the form of corn grits or flake corn
4: So I, my question would be then how do you think some of these rumours start then or how, how do these uh, falsehoods start that everybody then believes and then to that end, where do you begin your research to debunk so much of what so many people have come to believe uh, as true in the brewing industry?
3: Well, I, I, went, I went back to the to the brewing records because they tell you how they brewed. That, that, that's, there's, there's, no, there's no doubt when you see a brewing record, you can see exactly what ingredients they were using. And these were legal documents because the brewing industry was so tightly regulated, you couldn't just put on anything you wanted there. You had government <laughs> officials coming around and looking at those because they were, uh, rec- to some extent, tax, tax records. Um, so they have to be true. Where the all the stuff comes from, I think a lot of it comes from... Um, partly uh, from, from the, from the um, Scotch Ale book I can't remember who wrote it It's Greg
2: Noonan's book yeah.
3: Yeah. Um, He went to The one brewery we went to, Caledonian Is the only one where they have a directly fired copper And where they did have caramelising It's the only brewery in Scotland That seems to have ever operated like that um, The other problem is There's a, a book written in the 1850s uh, Called Scottish Ale Brewer and that says, that has the stuff about low fermentation temperatures and low hopping. But when you look and see what he says is low hopping, it's actually a little bit less than in London, but no different from the hopping rates in, in, in provincial English breweries. And with the fermentation temperatures, pe- people people misunderstand, I think, the, the, the pitching temperatures are very low in, Scottish, in a lot of the Scottish beers and the reason for that is that they were hugely strong, so you have to pitch at a lower temperature when the warts have a really high gravity because you're going to have so much heat generated during the fermentation and so they'd pitch at maybe 54 or 55 in, in a beer that was 1130 but the temperature would go up to just about 70 degrees during the fermentation so it's not, nothing like a lager-like temperature, it's, it's really very different
0: all right. Hey, uh, we're going to take another short break. We've been talking with uh, Ron and, and Dan and John Hall here on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Mm-hmm. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. We're out here with the special pre-record for Roberta's. It's like lunchtime on a Monday in March. Uh, you'll be listening to this sometime in April, but we had a special guest come over from England, uh, Ron Pattinson, whose uh, new book is out, The Home Brewer's Guide to Vinci's Beer. we got Dan Paquette from Pretty Things, who's made uh, some beers with uh, Ron's historical recipes, and John Hall from All About Beer. So we, we kind of geeked out a little bit. We were talking about, you started losing me on gravity and some other things, <laughs> but I, I know how intense you are in the kind of Research that you've done to, 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 to see what you know what beer was really being made in, in England in the in the 1800s. Um, let's just talk about this in general. So, good English beer, you know, for for what you expect it to be and and and, and what you enjoy, you know, what to you is good English beer? Uh,
3: good English beer. Well, I'd have to say cask beer. I, I think I think that's the the one thing that's special in British brewing is the, the cask beer tradition, which is wonderful, and I think. When a cast beer is done well, there's nothing that can beat it. It's, uh, I think Dan would probably agree with me there.
2: Yeah, I agree. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, so, what, so, what is going on? I mean, I mean, I know about camera. There, there, you know, there's some recent history of cast beer, but all the beers you're talking about, all the historical beers in England, they're all being served ca- in cast format.
3: Um, not the- all of them. Uh, I mean, the, the, the double brown that we're drinking now that was a bottled beer. That, I doubt that was ever sold draft. That was a specifically bottled style. I mean, you, you have some styles that were really bottled beers. Um, so brown ale and light ale, they were really just bottled beer styles. Um, it's a real shame with, with with both of those that they're virtually stone dead in England. There, there can't be more than half a dozen brown ales brewed. And light ales, I think there's only two or three still around. Whereas at one time, every brewery used to make them. But these are beers that... you. you you see fashions, um, and sometimes people try and try and make it look as if it's inevitable that a certain style would have taken over, but a lot of it just seems to be random, from what I can tell. And what tends to to send beers on a, on the path to extinction, styles is when they become associated with old people, which is what happened with brown <laughs> ale, what happened with my, my personal favourite, mild ale. It, it came to be the drink of old men, so obviously they no young person wants to drink it anymore. And, and so there's a natural tendency for, for the popularity of styles to, to, to vary along uh, as generations age and die, that the beer styles that they were particularly associated with the generation, the same thing happens. And so I would say that something like Pale Lager will inevitably at some point become incredibly unfashionable and when it does when when styles start going out of fashion it can happen incredibly quickly so like in in a period of 10 or 20 years something can go from being incredibly popular to virtually extinct and i've seen that happen with various styles in britain and i'm sure the same thing will happen to ipa eventually in in the craft world that People will think it will become old hat and boring, and people won't want to drink it anymore, and they'll move on to some something else. It's happened to every single style that's ever existed, so I don't see why history should be different in in the future to how it's been in the past.
2: Well, it's funny. Ron was talking about drinks of old people. I, you know, I was a brewer in in the north of England for a bunch of years, and uh, the drink of old people right now is real ale. (laughs) I mean, when you think, I mean, there are some young people associated, but mostly we're, we're... you know, we were making beers for gentlemen in their 50s, 60s, 70s. Uh, it was frustrating that there weren't, there wasn't a lot of youth uh, in that particular culture. And uh, even my young co-workers at the brewery thought it was a bit geeky,
4: <laughs> to be fair.
2: John, what do you think
0: about the like the, Cascale, the real scene in the States? Do you think there's any potential here? Well,
4: I think there is some potential. Uh, I think it's growing uh, more and more. We're seeing breweries like Heavy Seas down in Maryland. Uh, which has put a lot of time and effort into their cask program. We're seeing more and more breweries um, uh, embrace cask ales. But I, I, I don't know if there's the knowledge uh, on the U.S. brewers, uh, number one, uh, to make uh, cask ales in the same way that Ron is saying that you know it, it, it's your favorite style. I don't know if they're making it in the way that you would enjoy it in the same way. Uh, and, and, and two, I, I don't think that there's the customer or the consumer uh, knowledge base yet. Uh, Unfortunately, I think a lot of people in the U.S. still seem to view it as warm and flat, and and it's neither. But um, there needs to be better education on the part of the brewers, and I think as more brewers start doing that, uh, more education will come.
0: My my pet peeve about cask. Okay, so, Ron, we had a short conversation about it last night. Guinness. Guinness. To me, at one time I said that I felt that Guinness was like fake industrialized cask beer, and no one had any idea what I was talking about.
3: Yeah, well, it, but it is. It, it, but, uh, the, Thank you, Ron. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody that agrees with you. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, obviously the whole thing about nitrogen. that the, the nitro-
0: o- Only historical scholars get what I'm talking about.
3: <laughs> <laughs> the, the whole thing about nitrogen is, it's obviously it's trying to reproduce the feel of cask beer, the mouthfeel of cask beer. Um, but at the same time, it dumbs down the beer. So it, it, you get some of the effect of cask, but without the real benefits so the, 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 the real wonder of cask beer is that beer will continue to develop uh, the, when we did the two mile ales uh, uh, Dan did one cask that he sent to a pub yeah. and I d- drank it at the pub just after it had been tapped and there wasn't much difference between it and the bottled or the, or the tap version I went and tried it again after two days, and the beer had developed just wonderfully. It was so much better than the other versions, and so much better it had been when it, it, it than when it had initially been tapped and You could see that there had been this massive development in the beer and, and the, the development had been an increase in complexity so It it definitely, definitely, definitely helped the beer. And I've had people argue with me saying, oh, you know, as soon as you open the cask, all it's going to do is oxidise. It's only going to get worse. And I'm convinced that that is not true at all.
4: What, sure. what, what should we be looking for uh, here in the U.S. as we experience uh, Cascale, If we travel uh, overseas, wh- what are some of the flavors? What are some of the mouthfeel? What, what's the overall experience that we should be looking for so that we know that we're drinking great Cascale, Or is there a blanket answer for that?
2: Well, I mean, there are there are probably a few uh, hints. You know, one is it's bright. Yeah, it's bright. they so so are
3: moving it. away from that now. You got all these unfined beers that yeah. they, they serve up murky and.
2: We started at the Great British Beer Festival a few years ago. There were things that wouldn't have ever been poured five years ago were being served just mur- sort of murky beer. But in the pubs generally, you're going to find sparklingly uh, bright beer, and that's a good sign that somebody's taking care of the beer downstairs. You're going to find that there is carbonation to be knocked out, and you will have a nice – well, in Yorkshire they have a nice head. Um, <laughs> but We're not going to get into anything, these con- controversial things like this, but um, there will be some carbonation. There will be some life – and you can taste, um, the when the beer first comes on, it's usually a bit more some of its parts sort of a thing. And then uh, uh, if, if you get to know the beer over time, you'll know whether you're towards the middle of the cask, the end of the cask. Um, yeah, it t- t- tends to get a tiny bit of uh, tart- tartness. I wouldn't say sourness, but it starts to go in that direction. I love a good, just pints of bitter. It's like drinking iced tea. It's the most refreshing thing in the world, you know, it's...
3: I lived in Leeds for a long while, and in the 1970s and 80s. And at the time, virtually all the beer was Tetley's. And so I drank virtually exclusively te- Tetley's Mild. And I got very fussy because it would taste different in all the pubs. There'd be subtle differences in it. And there was some where they served it more to my liking than others. And so I'd, I'd seek out those specific pubs to drink it because there was an appreciable difference in the quality of the beer. And the, pub, the pubs where they sold it the worst, in the worst condition, it was pretty much the same as the bright version. But where they served it right, it was so much better, so much better. And it was all to do with the, what, what was happening in the cellar of the pub, the skill of the, of the publican, how he handled the beer, how he tapped it, exactly all all, of, all the cellar management things. It was so important. And I think that's the it's the glory of cask and also its downfall, in that. It's a very complex process, and all you need is one idiot at some point (laughs) between the brewery and when it gets into your glass and the beer's ruined. And one of the problems has been recently, it used to be that the pubs were virtually all owned by breweries, and so the brewers had had some influence on the quality of the beer in the pub. And also they were de- delivering it directly to the pub. So it was a very short supply chain, which, which with something like cask beer is really important. You don't want it going through too many hands. You don't want it lying around anywhere in the, in the sunlight for any length of time. You have to handle it really carefully. And, and with breaking the connection between the, the brewery and the and pub, I think it damaged the overall quality of cask beer quite badly. And you see that uh, breweries where that still exists, so with Fuller's, You go into a Fuller's pub, and I would say your chances of getting a pint in reasonable condition are pretty good. You go into a pub of a pub chain, you've got no idea.
2: Yeah, uh, I like to read these sort of uh, centenary uh, histories of uh, of English breweries, and a lot of them started buying pubs when they were frustrated by how their beer was being served in people's pubs. Yeah, well, it's
3: it's also, I mean, the whole thing about tight houses and pubs, it's it's a... it's so one of the things I like to say to people is that, that, that beer doesn't exist in a vacuum and it doesn't develop just ra- in just random ways for the most part. It develops based on, on legislation, on the tax system, on a whole complex series of things. And the whole thing about tight houses, that all comes from when they were trying to reduce the number of pubs in the late 1890s. And so it became impossible virtually to get a new licence. And so because the number of outlets was declining, the, pub- the breweries started to buy the pubs. And so it ended up with, I think, about 80, 85% of all the pubs owned by a brewery. And it, it was a really big change. And it, it, yeah, it, and it's the reason why all the breweries went to become limited companies in the 1880s and 1890s. It was to raise capital so they could buy pubs.
0: One last question. Um, we're going to be running out of time soon. Okay. Um, you said that... Sometimes we, we talk in the States about, you know, real small breweries and how all beer has to be, like, you know, from super small craft breweries. We've had a lot of talks about that, and we'll have many more. But for you, uh, how big can you still have good beer? And is it anything? has that to do with, with being local?
3: Um, well, I can remember, I, I can remember examples from when, when I was in my... Like, say, Tetley's that I've just mentioned. I thought their beer was some of the best I've ever drunk. And they were... Uh, about as big as breweries get in Britain. Uh, Same's true of Bass. Uh, when they still had the union sets, Draft Bass was a magnificent beer. And they were, were the largest brewing company in Britain, Bass Charrington. And they still produced really, really top class beer. And that's only, I don't know, in mid 1980s. So. W-
0: were they pasteurising?
3: No, 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 doing? no. Well, then, I mean, Draft Bass used to be brewed in union sets. Then in the 80s, they took them out. And the beer definitely went down in quality after that. But when they still had the union sets, it's, it could be a wonderful beer if it was looked after properly, uh, amongst the best beers in the country, I thought.
0: So that, that you can be a, 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 a successful brewery and grow, and you can still make good beer. Yes, yes. I, I,
3: if you want to. The, the problem normally is that at a certain point, the money men take over. If, if brewing, and, and generally the smaller the brewery, the more influence the head brewer has. And when the head brewer doesn't have any control anymore about how the brewing takes place, that's normally when the the quality of the beer goes down. When the bean counters take over, then all they're interested in is making the beer as cheaply as possible, and they don't care about the quality. And you would see that generally, that as soon as the accountants get control, the, the beer's done for. All
0: right. Do you guys want to say any final words before we sign off?
2: Um, well, I was going to try to promote the event tonight, but that's not. Uh,
0: well, say say <laughs> what you guys are doing in, in New York anyways.
2: Uh, well, you know, Ron's got this book. And I think if you're a home brewer or know a home brewer, it's a, uh, Father's Day and all this sort of thing. Um, it's a great book to to grab. There's about 100-something historical recipes. And we're just sort of, uh, we want people to be exposed to this, you know, all, these, all this lost brewing culture. And it's this nice spiral sort of notebook beer uh beer book uh gives a person an opportunity to to go back and, and learn from these long dead brewers you know who can't speak anymore with their beer
0: dead Brewers society <laughs> and, and where, where did you guys you guys were in boston tell us where you went in boston new york philly
2: yeah in boston what did we do ron we did a, a radio show um in, in the dig radio in boston and then we did a a massive event uh actually a couple of events we we had a cask of the brown ale in our office for industry only we had a good time drinking that and then we had a pretty massive event in uh, union square in somerville where we launched the double brown ron sold books we also have a beer called grampus uh that we launched and uh boy we met a lot of people hundreds of people <laughs> it was fantastic we came down yesterday we were at jimmy's 43 last night uh hung out and drank beer with a lot of uh, industry folk and uh Folky folk and all sorts drunk of... Drunk brewers. Yeah, all sorts of people.
0: It was funny. Ron, Ron said on his... He he put it on his blog. said, I'm going to New York and at Jimmy's number 43, is an industry night. I guess that's drunk brewers. <laughs> <laughs> Which it kind of was. And uh, you're going to Brooklyn Beer Merchants, too, right, in New
2: York? Oh, what's that? Oh, no. Are Isn't we? That? I think that's tonight. Oh, no, Browry Lane. Brewery Lane, Lane, sorry. Yeah. Oh, that's okay.
0: <laughs> and you're selling this. But you guys are here. You're doing, you're doing some great things. And really, thanks for coming on. I, I really have been waiting to meet you for a long time. And it's great to have you back in, in New York City, Dan. Um, so, again, check it out. You can go. Uh, Shut up about Barkley Perkins, the blog, and the Homebrewers Guide to Vintage Beer by Ron Patterson. Thanks, everybody, for joining me. Uh, Dan Paquette from Pretty Things, Sean Hall from All About Beer, Ron Pattinson, uh, you guys. Thanks so much, everyone. Thanks for joining us on Heritage Radio Network. Cheers. All right, rock on. Cool.
1: Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org.